You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, a casually dressed Jason Whitlock uh, today. Happy Tuesday, happy day after Monday, happy day before hump day. Uh, we're gonna try to do the damn thing. Uncle Jimmy, I think, is, is doing better, and we hope to have him back a little later this week. Uh, but, you know, he's still on what are they, the DL, disabled list for right now. Not the down low, the DL, the disabled list. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble for saying that, uh, Uncle Jimmy is going to get back, get me back for that. Anyway, awesome, awesome show, uh, planned for you today. We're going to do a little mix of sports and politics. Uh, second half of the show, the great, the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires will be here and we'll talk about Van Jones and his new baby mama that he's bragging about. Delano's written a column about it. We'll, we'll go into that. We'll also talk a little bit about hip hop and why black people are so defensive about gangster rap. This came up uh, because of the Super Bowl and, and Delano got in a little Twitter back and forth uh, yesterday with a bunch of uh, other black conservatives and they were defensive. Anyway, we'll get into that with uh, Delano. It should be an interesting conversation. We'll start the show, though, uh, with the Korean Cosell and, and talk some Richard Sherman. Uh, and then at some point, we're going to transition to a debate uh, we wanted to have yesterday. We delayed it until today. Uh, Aaron Donald just had a dominant, impressive performance at the Super Bowl. Uh, he now has a Super Bowl ring. I'm calling him the Michael Jordan of football. He's the closer. He closes out games, closes out teams. Uh, and so we're going to have a discussion and a debate about is Aaron Donald now in the conversation for the best football player ever? The key word there is best, not the greatest, the best. That's a whole different category. And so Steve Kim and I both have our little top five list of, of who are the best NFL players ever. And we'll find out if Aaron Donald's on that list, should he be in consideration. Uh, but we're going to start <clears throat> by talking about uh, the former leader of the Legion of Boom, uh, Richard Sherman. Uh, yesterday, NFL star and Stanford grad Richard Sherman made great use of his black privilege. Sherman announced his retirement from football and launched his TV broadcasting career by climbing on the back of Super Bowl winning quarterback Matt Stafford. Sherman took a massive dump on the idea of the Rams Super Bowl victory, justifying Stafford's candidacy for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 
a handful of broadcasters on ESPN and the NFL Network floated the idea of Stafford wearing a gold jacket. Sherman filed a strong objection over Twitter, saying, quote, writing, quote, the Hall of Fame bar is incredibly low right now, like a participation trophy. No all-decade team, no all-pro, no MVP, one Pro Bowl, not even MVP of the Super Bowl, never considered the best in any year he played. At least Matt Ryan has an MVP. Sherman went back and forth with people defending uh, Stafford. He added, all-pro is a measuring stick. All-decade is a measuring stick. Those show you you were considered best at your position during the time you played. If you were not in that discussion, you definitely shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame consideration. In a different tweet, Sherman said, there's no measuring stick that makes Stafford a Hall of Famer other than playing in the most passer-happy decade in NFL history. Inflated numbers make every quarterback that starts 10-plus years a Hall of Famer. Mm. Richard Sherman, every word of that critique is 1,000% accurate. I agree with every single word. The Hall of Fame has lowered the standard for induction. Very good players are being enshrined alongside, alongside all-time greats. Stafford, at the moment, is not worthy of Hall of Fame consideration. Sherman's commentary is fair. It's just extremely unusual coming from an active NFL player, especially a player as accomplished as Richard Sherman. Stafford and Sherman are peers. They're the same age. Their careers overlap. There's a fraternity among NFL players. They're generally highly reluctant to criticize each other in a straightforward manner. Unless they're in the process of transitioning to a second lucrative career. Richard Sherman is done as a player. He finished the 2021 season on injured reserve for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Bucs picked him up in October. He played his last game in mid-December. Since then, Sherman has focused on his podcast. A week before the Super Bowl, on his podcast, Sherman began his attack on Stafford's legacy. Those comments were mostly ignored. Sherman aired his Stafford critique on Twitter so that the media would notice, particularly media executives. A few years ago, it was a foregone conclusion that Sherman would easily transition into a TV broadcasting career. That was before cameras caught Sherman terrorizing the home of his wife and in-laws in July of 2021. Sherman wrestled with police. He was eventually arrested and charged with driving under the influence, endangering roadway workers, resisting arrest, and domestic violence related to counts of malicious mischief and criminal trespass. The incidents raised questions about Sherman's mental stability and undermined his prospects of landing a high-priced, cushy studio TV job. Enter Matt Stafford. The Rams quarterback offered Sherman an ideal opportunity to remind television execs why they coveted it, his services before the domestic dispute. Sherman has been on the radar of TV networks since his 2014 NFC Championship 
post-game interview when he shocked Fox Sports sideline reporter Aaron, Aaron Rodgers with a boisterous attack on 49ers receiver Michael Crabtree. Take a listen for yourself. Let's send him down to the field and Aaron Edwards. Joe, thank you so much. Richard, let me ask you the final play. Take me through it. Well, I'm the best corner in the game. When you try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree, that's the result you're going to get. Don't you ever talk about me. Who was talking about you? Crabtree, don't you open your mouth about the best. Or you're going to shut it for you real quick. L.O.B. All right, before... It's arguably the most famous post-game interview in the history of sports. Maybe when Steve Kim comes on, he can get throw out some other examples. I don't know of anything more infamous than that. It established Sherman as the loudest mouth in football and football's answer to Charles Barkley. It was easy to imagine Sherman earning five to 10 million a year talking football. That's quite the football golden parachute. Thanks to the domestic incident, things are much trickier for Sherman. Enter Matt Stafford. The Rams quarterback offered Sherman the perfect opportunity to promote his podcast and tempt TV executives. Criticizing Stafford is low risk. He's white. His wife once criticized Colin Kaepernick's kneeling and complained that Michigan's mask mandates were authoritarian. Plus, at this moment, Stafford's resume is completely unworthy of Hall of Fame consideration. Richard Sherman can't lose. Publicly ripping Stanford is a win-win situation for Richard Sherman. It's good controversy. It's good trouble, as John Lewis would say. It overshadows his controversy. The, the video of him trying to bulldoze his father-in-law's front door. This video is hard to forget. As of today, Ray has not come through, uh, but Richard Sherman certainly wanted to pick. Ray, I believe it was his father-in-law. Uh, the criticism of Stafford's uh, demonstrates Sherman's ability to state opinions that drive conversation on other platforms. Sherman's handlers will take the stories written about the reaction to his staff, uh, Stafford comments and show them to media executives as proof that the media has moved on and moved beyond his domestic incident. It's all forgotten. Sherman's next publicity stunt will be to take a strident political stance or accuse someone white of racism. Maybe he will offer strong words in support of Brian Flores and his discrimination lawsuit against the NFL. Richard Sherman was supposed to be the left-wing Charles Barkley. He is in the process of rehabilitating his broadcasting career. Stafford is just a pawn in Sherman's personal chess game. Who knows? Tom Brady, his former Buccaneers teammate, could be Sherman's next chess move. That's my fire for today. Uh, look, they've always had a plan 
for Richard Sherman. Always. Northern California baked at Stanford, grew up out in L.A., in California. They've had a plan for Richard Sherman for a long time. All the way when he was doing that shouting with Aaron Rodgers, it was this guy is going to be football's Charles Barkley, and he's going to be left wing. Charles Barkley tends to be a bit conservative, certainly middle of the road, and football is a much bigger platform than basketball. And there were visions of Richard Sherman sitting at ESPN or NBC somewhere throwing out these left-wing darts and calling everybody racist and driving uh, that kind of controversial discussion around football. He blew it in July when uh, he got busted trying to break down his father-in-law's door and riding around drunk and now he looks crazy. And so he needs to say a few things to move people past that last controversy, that last news cycle he was in, to make people forget that video. They had big plans for Richard Sermon. You guys think Colin Kaepernick, see like Colin Kaepernick's an idiot or he'd be sitting on one of these network TV shows calling the NFL racist. They had Richard Sherman, the Stanford graduate. Oh my God, he's brilliant. He went to Stanford. Had him all lined up to be football's answer to Charles Barkley. Now he's trying to work his way back. And I'm sure there are people helping him handling him again. Do we have the clip of what he actually said on his podcast? I, I thought we had that clip of because of, of, he actually went after Stafford a week ago. Uh, and and I, I should have. Oh, we do have the clip of him talking on that podcast. Let's play that clip. I, I meant to. I, I definitely wanted to hear that. Let, let's play that clip. Are you saying one Pro Bowl gets you in? No, not one. <laughs> he only has one Pro Bowl. He played 12 years in Detroit, bro. Uh, I'm legit. I, big play slate. Played a couple years in Detroit and got more than one Pro Bowl. Uh, you know. Uh, but, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, are we lowering the criteria? That's what I, my conversation for a lot of people when they say all-time greats and all that. Because it used to be a certain, like, that's what they said. It's, it's like, like uh, water down now. Because it it's like. Like, oh, okay, guy got one one Super Bowl and, and one Pro Bowl, and he's in the Hall of Fame with dudes who got seven first-team All-Pros and, you know what I mean, two MVPs, three defense MVPs, and they're in the same category. They're the same Hall of Fame. Listen, he's 100% on the mark. I've been talking about this for years. Steve Kim and I talked about it last week. Steve Kim mentioned that it's like a big TV show now, and so they're just forcing guys in in order to fill the, 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 uh, the TV spot. I have been saying, like, they lowered the standard when they came up with this criteria. Can you, uh, can you tell the story of the NFL without mentioning this person. And they changed the standard of that so people don't have to evaluate football. It's now storytell hour. 
It's the, oh, and so anybody, if you want women Hall of Fame voters, they can decide whether or not people can tell the story of the NFL without mentioning this person. It used to be about evaluating your playing ability and production on the field. And it took a little insight into football to evaluate that. They removed that criteria. And so now they need five or six, seven people to put in every year. And now you got people uh, evaluating, was this a good story? The Hogs, oh, what a great nickname. And so we have to put one of the Hogs in to represent the Washington Redskins offensive line. So let's put in Russ Grimm. Russ Grimm's not an all-time great. He's not the same as John Hanna and Larry Allen. This, and again, we just had a bunch of guys go in this year. It's every year now. They're not in the same category as, as the all-time greats. You can't put – Cliff Branch, nice job, man. Nice career with the Raiders. But he's in the same Hall of Fame with Jerry Rice. So Richard Sherman, 1,000% accurate. He said it on his podcast. No one paid attention. So he took to Twitter and blew up Matt Stafford, uh, drove a lot of conversation about himself, still going on. Guy's trying to get back in that broadcasting booth. They're paying people a lot of money. I mean, Tony, what, what is Tony Romo making, like 18 million bucks? I don't blame uh, Richard Sherman for being thirsty. He can make more money as a broadcaster than he did playing football. So he just stepped on the neck of uh, Matt Stafford to make it happen. Don't think he would have did that to a black quarterback. But I'll ask Steve Kim that here in a second. You think he would have done if Dak Prescott and the Cowboys win a Super Bowl next year and people start talking about Dak Hall of Fame. Think Richard Sherman will put him on blast? I don't. All right, let me tell you guys about ExpressVPN. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days, like 30 to 40 bucks a month? It's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees, they're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and your ISP can't get a hold of it? The answer is ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted and it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all your tablets, smart TVs, even your router so your entire family can always stay protected. Your data is business. Protected at expressvpn.com slash fearless. Visit expressvpn.com slash fearless to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash fearless to learn more. All right, the Korean Cosell. Thanks. All right, welcome back. Time to roll out to Los Angeles and bring in the Korean Cosell and talk about all the stuff I just talked about in my fire starter. I love it when I just move my hands for no reason, like, ooh, the, like I'm flapping 
Like, I'm going to fly up in the air. My big ass ain't going to get I could flap as hard as I want. I'm still not getting up in the air. All right, uh, Steve Kim, you just heard me rant and rave about Richard Sherman. I'm going to start here. Do you think uh, Richard Sherman would have taken this kind of dump on Dak Prescott had Dak Prescott won the Super Bowl on Sunday? Uh, first of all, uh, good Tuesday to you, Jason. Uh, one thing. Uh, that video, the footage of him at the front door, uh, that dispels the myth that Sherman could not play press coverage. But anyway, uh, to your question, I actually believe that he wouldn't because it's, it wouldn't be a popular take with the audience that he is trying to attract. But again, um, I think Richard is jumping the gun. Nobody, I don't know that many people that are saying Matt Stafford would be a Hall of Famer right now, even after the Super Bowl. My take has been clear. With this Super Bowl victory and this playoff run that he had, he begins to state his case. He's 34 years old, Jason, which means in today's game, with the way quarterbacks are protected, he has about a six- to eight-year window to begin to state, hey, this is why I should be in Canton. He's going to need an MVP type of season. He's going to need another ring, make, make three or four Pro Bowls. And at that point, you're thinking – yeah, he's in. But you're right. If Dak Prescott, who has the same type of arc, were to win the Super Bowl in, let's say, his 12th year uh, the way Stafford did, and he didn't have six, seven, eight Pro Bowls, what would the narrative be? Would he dare say it? Because let's be honest, a lot of this is about pandering, playing to a certain audience or demographic, and then currying favor and then riding that wave. But I want to go back to Stafford real quickly here, Jason. He literally came into a team that won no games. None. The 2008 Lions, if I'm not mistaken, were 0 for the season. That is like becoming the mayor of Hiroshima after the Enola Gay flew over it. I mean, you literally are going to an expansion team. Still made the playoffs three times. I know what his flaw in his game is. He has so much arm talent that it actually gets him into trouble. But you're right. Richard Sherman was very, very factual. I respect that. He didn't say a single thing that I really disagreed with. The question now becomes, are you going to have a high standard, a double standard, or a no standard to certain players? That's the true test if he could really be a respected voice. Steve, I got to admit, I've made a mistake here. I, I really, I forgot or overlooked or just thought in the mm. moment in talking to you about another aspect of Richard Sherman's mm. agenda here. And, and when I say this, you're going to be like, oh, of course. Some of what Richard Sherman's doing here, and again, it's mostly driven by him trying to rehabilitate his broadcasting career, breathe life into his podcast. This guy was supposed to be Charles Barkley. But, Steve, he's also taking a shot at Russell Wilson. Mm. I just, while you were talking, I just went and looked. Now, Russell Wilson's got a bunch of Pro Bowls. Yeah. He's never made all pro first or second team. Never. He, he's not, Russell Wilson's not going to make an all-decade team, likely. Russell Wilson won a Super Bowl, in Richard Sherman's mind, on the back of the Legion of Boom. Part of what he's saying here is a shot at Russell Wilson. Your thoughts? Jason, there has always been an underlying tension 
between those two. There was an ESPN story about five, six years ago. I forgot who wrote it, but it was a very good piece. And it basically said that the Legion of Boom, that side of the ball, they kind of looked upon Russell Wilson as Carlton Banks. That he was black, but he wasn't black enough. I don't know if you recall that story. Also, I think there's some lingering animosity. Look, Russell Wilson, if he just hands the ball off to beast mode, they beat the Patriots. Instead, they they throw the No, they don't. No, they stop it, Steve. No, they don't. You don't think so? The guy guy had – I think they said on – Short yardage runs of one yard or what beast mode that season had been stopped on 75% of them. Okay, but you know what? The play before he gashed him for about seven and a half yards. Remember, go through variables. That's late in the game. It wasn't that, it, it wasn't okay. a one yard situation where they're lined up ready, prepared to stop the run. But he hadn't been great in those situations. Regardless, though, interception. You remember, Richard Sherman was immediately the first player, I think, NBC Pantry, yep. where he's screaming. And I don't think that franchise ever recovered. It was a soul-sucking defeat. And when the quarterback gets all the credit, they also get all the blame. And that, to me, in the back of Sherman's mind, he's thinking, you know what? We should be up there with the Steel Curtain. We should be up there with the Ravens 2000 defense. That could have cemented my legacy, our legacy. You took away a ring. And... I think that's a factor now that I think about it. Mm, I wish I had thought of it earlier. Uh, And so do you think this shot at Matt Stafford, do you think this is a bad look for Richard Sherman? Given his stature, this is, you know, he's certainly a Hall of Fame caliber player. To be taking this kind of shot 24 hours after a guy wins a Super Bowl, bad look for Richard Sherman. Jason, I disagree. As long as he's consistent in judging everyone the same and there is an equal criteria, I'm going to respect Richard Sherman because what is our biggest complaint, Jason, of athletes and media members? They don't say anything. They're afraid to be out there. Richard Sherman will say bold things. I respect that. Let's go back to Joe Montana and Lawrence Taylor when they retired and they transitioned into the booth. They were terrible. They were all-time great players. The problem with Joe Montana was he was too nice of a guy. He was a beige spot on a beige wall. Lawrence Taylor never prepared one bit, and it showed on the broadcast. Richard Sherman has some guts. He he is, what I would say, fearless for what he said, and he was out there, and he, he has a pretty good delivery from what I heard. So I respect that. I actually think we need to get more players to be critical Because there are too many times, Jason, you know this, me and you have been in this situation, we ask players about other members of their team or people they play against, and they give you captain cliche. I give Sherman credit. He was factual, and he had the guts to put his name on it. I give Sherman, I give him a tip of the cap for that. Mm. Do you think, given all that praise you just gave him, do you think he could be the Charles Barkley of football? Okay, that's a different story. You know there's different sorts of broadcasting. Doing a podcast is like having a conversation with a microphone. A lot of people can do that. But to do what Barkley does, I think, is an absolute art form. People do not understand about this, Jason. When you are a great broadcaster, you understand that you are not just an orator. You're not just a fact-sayer, you are an entertainer. So you have to learn how to be concise, your diction, your tempo, your pacing, your cadence, modulating a voice. 
is actually more difficult than it looks. A lot of people think, oh, if you put me on TV, I could do it. No, you couldn't. It's like people that think they could be uh, male adult stars. When the cameras are on, you might become Cindy Brady and shrivel up and freeze, okay? So that's the key. When, and when it's actually a studio setting and there's cues you got to hit and you only had a, a minute or so to make your point, that's a different art form than doing a podcast. So that remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. I, I, I get it. But look, I don't know if Barkley just kind of does Barkley. If you've right. ever spent any time around Barkley, he's the same guy off air as he is right. on air. And I think that's they put Sherman in the exact same position. Just do you, Richard Sherman. We've prepped you at Stanford in Northern California to say all this left wing and to call people racist and, to, you know, be controversial. I actually think he could be a different version of Charles Barkley. He would appeal to a different crowd. I actually believe there is some I think he's going to get that opportunity. I don't think that video is going to stop him from getting that opportunity. He beat up a door and he was liquored up. He's got some mental stability issues. That can all be overlooked. That's that's nothing. There are broadcasters on these networks, former players, that got worse issues or as bad an issues as, as Richard Sherman. And they actually, I'm telling you, they actually love guys like Richard Sherman yeah. who they have dirt on and are compromised. And so I, I think, I don't think this video is going to stop him from getting that opportunity. Jason, go back to Barkley. He one time accidentally spit on a girl courtside. His aim was bad. It wasn't intended for still a bad look. He threw someone through a plate glass window at a club. Michael Irvin, my personal favorite, he has a rap sheet longer than a CVS receipt. Okay, but if you are willing to be a personality, and this is one thing that, Jason, I think me and you are good at, we don't care what people think. You have to be willing to let your personality show and understand that if not everyone is going to agree with us. You better have a thick skin like an armadillo and move on. And if you're willing to make fun of yourself, be self-deprecating, which Charles Barkley is very good at, and he's turned it into an absolute art form, that's going to be the test of Richard Sherman. Is he going to take himself too seriously? Now, if he doesn't and understands this is the entertainment business, he has a shot. Do you think he'll get it? Again, we're Barkley, <clears throat> Michael <sighs> Irvin, they all got in before this woke cancel right. culture era. Richard Sherman's trying to start his career in the middle of the cancel culture era, and that video is is not a good look. Just my view. If he leans too much into the woke left radical politics and just hammers everyone with it too often, he's going to turn off half of America. That as soon as whatever show Richard Sherman's on, you're going to turn away. And that, that's going to be a real issue. How's, it, how's that any different? That's what everybody, every former player at ESPN, black player at ESPN, Randy Moss, right. Ryan and Clark, that's what they and, all do. And have you seen their ratings? That's the issue. Yeah, I know. They don't care about ratings. They care about agenda and message. Okay. Well, Jason, uh, 
this is an art form, but look, I'm sure you've been in this position where you've done a lot of shows, you've hosted radio shows, television shows, shows of this nature, and you've had long-term relationships with athletes that you really got along with, interviews were great, personalities were really sparkling and bright, and you think to yourself, wow, this guy would be good on air, and then you put them on air and they freeze up a little bit, they're not the same guy because it's a different type of conversation. That's going to be the key. The other thing is, uh, one thing about Charles Barkley, and I've been around him one time, the very, very relatable individual. And e- even though his leanings are known from a political standpoint, he's a very, very likable guy. He likes to laugh. He likes to have fun. He's got a great reputation with the public. He's always said, look, I'm a regular guy. I'm going to have fun. You can say hello to me. And you could laugh with him and at him. He's very self-deprecating, which I think is key. So I don't know if Richard Sherman really has that. When I've seen him in studio, because he's been on a couple of the ESPN shows, he actually is in a little bit of a shell. He doesn't really let it all out. Now, again, that's with him as a guest. But if you go back to Charles Barkley, I've seen clips of him early on in his broadcasting career. He's not the guy that he was 20 years ago. So you got to evolve at this just as you would as an athlete. I love your point about likability, and and that is where I think Sherman might not cut the mustard as it relates to Charles Barkley. I still, though, I think for the left and the political agenda that's being embraced in the National Football League, I don't care. I don't think they care about whether he's likable. I just will he spew the the left wing message the woke message that they want and do it with the credibility of being a Hall of Fame caliber NFL player uh, and stamped as a Stanford grad. And that, you know, that means he's, you know, scored a high enough SAT score and, you know, he can speak in complete sentences. And so I, I, I think there's a, I know he's going to get the opportunity. I don't think, for reasons you just pointed out and as it relates to likability, he'll never be what Barkley is in basketball <clears throat> because he'll just never be that likable. But the machine will try to fake it and pretend like he is. I just don't know if the public will buy it. I want to move on to a <clears throat> topic we wanted to get into yesterday. Didn't really have time. Uh, we're making time today. Aaron Donald. Uh, just won the Super Bowl. He's clearly the best football player in the NFL the last seven, eight, nine years. Grade him out on Pro Football Focus or anywhere. Anybody that watches him plays won, I think, three-time defensive player of the year. He just closed out the Super Bowl. He closed out the NFC Championship with great plays. I think Aaron Donald now moves into the conversation as – the best NFL player of all time. He moves into the mm-hmm. conversation. And, and I just think the one thing I want to be clear here, because Steve and I both have our little list of top five best players of all time, is the key word here is best. It's not greatest. I think greatest is a totally different discussion. I think when you start talking about greatness, you start talking about accomplishments and winning and championships and all that. And so I don't have a problem with anybody that calls Tom Brady the GOAT. I tend to agree with him. Greatest player of all time. 
got it. This is about the best player in, in NFL history. And so listed in alphabetical order, not because it's hard for me to distinguish. These are the five best players that I believe I've ever seen in the NFL. I want to apologize up front to Tom Brady. He's not on my list. He is the GOAT. He is the greatest. But I'm not putting him on the list as the best. And I want to issue a special apology, a really special apology to Jerry Rice. I just can't do it with a wide receiver. I just, I just, I can't. I can't, a wide receiver, I can't do it. And it's not a personal thing. So those are my five best players. Jim Brown, I'm just, I don't care about the era. Jim Brown, best in this, on this list. Aaron Donald, love him to death. Uh, Offensive lineman's nightmare. Uh, John Elway, that's going to be a very controversial pick. But I'm just sorry, if you really understand football, in my view, John Elway is the best quarterback who has ever played this game. He can play in any era of the NFL. All the way back to the very beginning, he can go 100 years back and be a superstar. He'd be a superstar in this era. You can't say that about all these other quarterbacks. I'm sorry, they've cheapened, just like Richard Sherman talked, they cheapened the game. It's all the rules lean towards quarterbacks. They all put up these incredible numbers. John Elway, mm-hmm. any era, great player. Uh, who? Oh, Lawrence Taylor. I, I don't know if I got to make a big argument to defend my decision there of Lawrence Taylor. And I don't think I have to make an argument to defend Reggie White. Uh, Reggie White, to me, well, he and Aaron Donald and Lawrence Taylor, just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. You just could Reggie White could go out and play against 11 people by himself and he'll make plays. If he just if he if it was just Reggie White versus eleven offensive players, he'll make some plays. I, Lawrence Taylor, Aaron Donald, I believe that about all three of those guys. That's my list. Ooh, no Jerry Rice. I I will I vehemently disagree. I, I truly think he's actually the best player that ever lived. And I didn't get to see Jim Brown, so he wouldn't be on my five. With all due respect to maybe the greatest athlete that ever was, Jerry Rice's ability at wide receiver to score as many touchdowns as he did is incredible. I know you don't care about longevity, but this guy played at a speed position for 20 years and was at an elite level for 18. Michael Irvin said it best. He said, I'm going to say right now, I'm a pretty good receiver. Nobody is Jerry Rice. That is Jesus in cleats. Now, we actually agree. Lawrence Taylor changed the game. He's the reason why we have a one-back offense, two tight end sets. Um, he asked Bill Belichick who the greatest player is. And he'll just tell you it is LT. Reggie White. This isn't a conversation about greatest. This is a conversation about best. Continue. Right. All right. And Reggie White, um, again, that guy can play any position in a 3-4 and a 4-3, much like Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald, I'd like to see him play a little bit more at his peak. I think he's right there in the top 10. He's very close. You have John Elway as your controversial pick. And this pains me to give a Florida Gator credit. I think Emmett Smith at his peak the first five, six years was as good as any football player I've ever seen. Not just statistically, I'm talking impact-wise. And Jason, I think he's actually underrated, and he doesn't get enough credit because his offensive line was so good. 
But let me state the case for catch Let me stop you. Let me stop you. Let me stop you, and and, and we can talk about But when I read Emmitt Smith, and I love Emmitt Smith. Yeah. I think Emmitt Smith is great. But I nearly fell out of my chair when I saw Emmitt Smith. I'm like, hey, man, you do know Barry Sanders uh, played in this league. Yes. I know you didn't see Jim Brown, but you do know that Barry Sanders – played in this league and you could line Barry Sanders up against 11 defensive players and he's going to break one or two runs all by himself and you Emmett Smith I I mean yes I love the numbers I love the accomplishments it's not even about the numbers (laughs) okay it's not Uh, about the numbers it's not but let me state the case for Emmett Smith he won and people say, well, anyone could have ran behind that line. Not true. Not true. And let me go back to 1993. Cowboys had just won a Super Bowl in 92. Emmett Smith's rookie contract runs out. So Jerry Jones knew he was going to lowball catch 22. So they draft the running back out of Alabama. They had just beaten Miami, the national title. Derek Lassick was the name. So they think, okay, we'll put in Derek Lassick, and we're going we're gonna to squeeze Emmett. They went 0-2 without Emmett. Charles Haley nearly had a one-man riot. He was about to beat up everyone in Dallas, including Jerry Jones, and he basically said, we can't win with Derek Lassick. Basically, Jerry Jones was so frightened, he said, okay, let's, let's pay Emmett his money. Every game Emmett played that year in full, they basically won, okay? Every game that he was injured or hurt outside of the Leon Lett uh, game in Thanksgiving, they lost. So go back, and you say, what is the impact of a great football player? One game sealed it for me, okay? 1993, last game in New Jersey with the Giants. Emmett busts a long run. His shoulder gets hurt on a, on a tackle. He had one shoulder. The guy has tears, and but in the fourth quarter and in overtime, the nitty-gritty, Emmett Smith did some heroic things out there where I said, wow. You know what? I actually think he's a more complete football player than Barry Sanders. Yes, that makes him greater. He caught the ball very well. He was good for about 50 catches a year in his first five, six. Also, blocking. It's a part of the game, Jason. You should know this. His pass pro was elite. It was elite. If a second-level defender came at Troy, trust me, Emmett would block it. Other thing, people always said Emmett was small. No, he was short. Look at his legs. Unbelievable contact balance and vision. The way he could... Press the hole and go back north-south. You cannot judge that. And then in the okay, Super Bowl. Okay, Steve. Steve, I mean, th- you're making on, great points. You're making, of course you're making I am. great points. But I, and so, but let's take Barry Sanders off the table then. Okay. How do you get Emmett over the Walter Payton bar? How, you know what? How do you that, get that, him over Walter Payton? You know what? That That's a good point. That gave me pause to think. It is a little bit of recency bias because I saw more of Emmett Smith than Walter Payton. Now, someone said, Steve, I think you're wrong with Payton. I'd say, you know what? You may be right because Walter Payton could also throw the ball. This is where the argument for Payton is very strong. You know, for the first nine years until Jimbo Covert, he never played with a Pro Bowl offensive lineman. Yeah. That's an amazing stat. So, all right, maybe I'll give you Payton. But when it came to Barry Sanders, you know, Barry Sanders used to be taken out on short yarded situations. He did. There was a guy by the name of Derek Moore. In the goal line, they used to give the ball to Derek Moore. Emmett Smith always got the ball. Emmett Smith was a touchdown-making machine. I'm just telling if you look at Emmett Smith's runs, there's this perception that all he did was run 70 yards straight. No. 
When you bust a run in the National Football League, the first four yards, that line gets for you. But to get big yards, you got to make someone miss or you got to run through somebody or break a tackle. Emmett Smith consistently did that. Let me tell you why there's your particularly after listening to you, the, the other skill that people don't talk about with running backs. And this is where I think Emmett really was elite and maybe maybe other than Marcus Allen is the only guy I would put in his category as it relates to vision. Yes. Vision is so key. Some guys can't see the crease. They can't anticipate the crease. They, they can't do the visual thing that you have to be able to do as a running back, and they'll have great talent, and they'll be, they'll be very good uh, running backs. But in order to be elite, and again, this is why Emmitt, despite, despite not running the fastest 40, and why Marcus Allen, despite not running the fastest 40, their vision was elite. And that that's why they were so productive in the league. Uh, did, did you tell – who was your other guy? Jerry? Ray oh, Lewis. Ray Lewis. I want to talk yeah. about Ray, make, Ray. Make, You know – Yeah. It's easy. Ray Lewis played 15 This is years. a Miami thing, but I love – Of it. course. You know what? I'm completely biased. I admit it. For 14 years, he's a three-down linebacker. But also, forget all the stats. By the way, you know he's the only player in the history of the NFL to have 30 interceptions and 40 sacks. So literally – that club is called Ray Lewis. It's the only guy getting into the velvet rope through the door, Studio 54. But where Ray Lewis sets himself apart is the leadership and the spirituality of the game of football. If you ever talk to somebody that played with him, and I'm sure you did, his ability to inspire people was incredible. And no one represented by themselves and their identity the Baltimore Ravens the way Ray Lewis did to a singular franchise also Anyone that played around Ray Lewis from Edgerton Hartwell to Adelius Thomas to Dwayne Starks, just by being around Ray Lewis and being a part of that defense, they would sign big-time million-dollar contracts. So Ray Lewis by himself was a stimulus package for the National Football League. Jay, that is true greatness of Raymond Anthony Lewis. <laughs> I, I'm a, the problem you keep having, Steve, is you keep using the word great and greatness. And we're talking about best. Yes, and he's that too. Five he player is. best. And, and so let, I don't really have a problem with the Ray Lewis deal because, trust me, Ray Lewis, if I was talking about greatest, he'd be on my list. Uh, certainly Tom Brady would be on my list. Jerry Rice would be on my list. It would be a, a bit of a different list. Reggie White would remain. <laughs> okay, so, Jay, I'll and, say this then. You're talking about best. Okay. Uh, I'm going to send you clips. Go to the Super Bowl that you were at in Tampa when they blew out the Giants. That game, he literally It's the one of the greatest performance, and I just use It's one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. He broke up four passes at a middle linebacker. Jack Del Rio was his linebacker coach. And he said, of all my years grading football players, one guy had 100 score. Out of all my years of grading players, he actually said Ray Lewis one time played a perfect game that technically he didn't make a bad read, he didn't have a single misstep, and he made every tackle. So by every criteria, Ray Lewis, I I think it's going to be tough to break him out of my top five. But if Aaron Donald, again, boy, it's Donald makes an argument, though, from the time he stepped on as as a St. Louis to an L.A. Ram. Jay, how many players can say for almost seven, eight years that they're the best player at their position right off the bat? 
It's amazing what Aaron Donald has done. That's our conversation about. Uh, and Jason, can I add one last thing here? Or the best player of all time. I'm sorry, I just screwed that and, up. Go ahead. And Jason, one last thing here before I get out of here. You asked me about most memorable post-game interviews. I don't know if it's as good as Sherman. Oh yeah, I do. Sal Palantonio asked Bart Scott after a playoff game, "Hey, you're going here, big win!" And Bart Scott just bellows out, "Can't wait!" That became a meme, so that's up there. That's a pretty good one. Bart Scott. That Sal is Palantonio. up there. That's a pretty good. One. That's a, that's a pretty good. One. All right, thank you, Steve. Great job. Uh, let me tell you about my friends from Keeps. Everyone loves their hair, and let's face it: as you get older, you start to experience issues with it. Our friends over at Keeps can help you with your hair stress. Keeps offers doctor-recommended, clinically proven, research-backed treatments to stop hair loss and improve hair growth. Keeps physicians will help you select the right products and treatments for your specific condition and hair goals. Keeps ships all of your treatments directly to your door at a price that's half the cost of your local pharmacy. With Keeps, you get quality, expert care without visiting any doctor's office or pharmacy. Whether you're looking to prevent hair loss, stimulate hair growth, or just take better care of your hair, you have Keeps. Keeps has you covered. Hair loss stops with Keeps. To get 50% off your first order, go to keeps.com slash fearless. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash fearless. Keep your hair and support one of our great sponsors. All right, smartest man on the show, Delano Jones. We're going to talk some Van Jones next. We must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible with freedom and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and, and of this, this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, welcome back. Time for the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires, Professor D, as we like to call him. Uh, D has written a column about Van Jones, the CNN broadcaster, uh, made an announcement last week about 
him ha he got into the middle of the COVID lockdown and realized, you know what, I want another kid. And went to lunch with a good friend of his, and they decided, yeah, let's have a baby, and we're gonna co-parent. And he talked about this and then suggested it for other people, that you know, other people should consider co-parenting the way that me and uh, my friend are. And you know, he's already got two kids from his marriage that ended in, in divorce. I, I read the comments, you know, these elites play by a separate set of rules than the rest of us, but Delano's written a column about it. And so, I, I, Delano, I want you to first start with explaining to the audience why is what Van Jones said and suggested, why is it dangerous? Sure. I mean, I think it's dangerous because uh, it speaks to a, a broader trend. Um, for years, when we've talked about um, non-marital births, right, out-of-wedlock births, we tend to focus in on um, lower-income families. Uh, a lot of that conversation is sort of hyper-focused on the African-American community. Um, it, it's we've become we've begun to look more so at you know uh, lower-income and working-class whites as well. But what Van Jones is doing and what he represents is a growing trend of college-educated, upwardly mobile um, Americans who are putting children before marriage. And this, this is a trend that's been growing. Social scientists have been, have been paying attention to it. And I think he's going even a step further, right? Because typically when you hear that, it's people in relationships together, co um, cohabitating, conscious co-parenting is something totally different. He's talking about people who are not even in a relationship um, deciding to have children together. And I mean, it just continues the detachment of marriage and child rearing. Now, the interesting thing about this TMZ article is that they never say how they conceived this child. And I'm not sure if Van made a deposit at the bank and the mother, Naomi, went to go pick it up or whether they did it the old fashioned way and then went back to being friends. Um, none of the articles that I found would speak to that. But as you said, this is one of those things where um, the elites, the ruling class, they they come up with different language to describe the types of behaviors that other people have been engaging in for a long time that have been criticized by um, some of those same elites. Delano, the first thing that ran across my mind when I read the story is that we've become so secular. And again, maybe Van Jones has always been secular and non-believer, I, I, I don't know. But there's like, there's no part of our thought process anymore in America that goes through like, well, I wonder how God would feel about this. Is this in, in alignment with my religious beliefs? And again, we used to have a society and that's why, and I'm not saying it was healthy, but it may be more healthy than this. That's why we had shotgun marriages <laughs> is because people thought like, hey man, it's crazy to have a kid and not be married and committed to each other. And, and whether they thought it, whether the individual person thought of it as a religious thing, the culture was so religious that we thought, hey man, you only have kids within marriage. That was the standard. And so 
people, and, and I'm sure a lot of women, particularly feminists, believe, yeah, shotgun marriages and getting married, that was terrible for us, and we lived, uh, you know, terrible lives, and, and the kids were mistreated. I don't, I think kids, I think kids should be a byproduct of marriage. I think that's what God intended. I think it's what removed God from it. I think it serves communities and societies uh, when that is the case. But now I'm just telling you, no part of our thought process, no part of our decision making has anything to do with God. And that's why I think we're now living the United States of Babylon. Mm. <laughs> I think what you're describing is what happens when um, every individual becomes their own God and um, sort of the rule maker for themselves. There's no higher authority. There's no higher power. There's no larger set of sort of transcendent moral principles that people appeal to. It's just whatever makes me feel happy in a particular moment is what I'm going to do. But you're right. I think a big part of this, and I said this in the column, is that we have begun to see um, sex as primarily a, a recreational act as opposed to a reproductive act. Um, so we've, we've stripped sex from its sort of original intent and its, its telos, right? Like the, the actual purpose of the thing. This is one of the reasons why it's so strange when, when sort of the pro-abortion crowd talks about reproductive justice and women having you know, reproductive rights. But the act of reproduction has already taken place if you get to the point of having an abortion, right? So it's, it's, it's not the, 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 the presence of the fetus, the baby, shows that reproductive um, you know, uh, behavior has, has taken place. So I'm, I, I agree with you completely. And I, and I don't think it's any, it's any surprise that you know, people, generally speaking, who have more liberal views on these issues find ways or find themselves advocating for the traditional family structure to go away. Um, we saw this with BLM and their Black Villages principle where they talked about being committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family. And one of the ironies is that journalists like Van Jones and other folks in mainstream media, corporate media, CNN, MSNBC, um, and even sort of more um, ethnic focused you know, black media, no one would ever ask them why an organization committed to the progress of black folks would argue for fewer nuclear families. And I, I just think, as I said, a part of this, a big part of this is worldview. And it's the worldview that says that the needs of adults should always supersede those of children. The adults get to reap the benefits. The kids have to pay the costs. Um, and, and I even mentioned in, in, in the column that there's, there's an entire genre of, um, you know, books and essays and commentary in this space. It, it's typically framed as, you know, divorce made me better. If we were talking, Jason, 50 years ago, we would have, we would have um, had a recognizable pattern of middle management guy, runs off with a secretary, starts a new family, leaves wife and kids behind. Now what it is is... Um, you know, very educated, sort of upwardly mobile uh, woman in media or some other high power career, um, gets dissatisfied with her family, divorces her husband, leaves her kids so she can drink more wine on Tuesdays and explore the world. The difference is that in the first example, 
that guy was castigated and, and seen as a, a louse for running out on his, on his family. And in the second example, that woman is celebrated and seen as someone who is fully self-actualized and, and liberated from the responsibilities of, of marriage and motherhood. So I think what Van Jones and his baby mama are doing is exactly the same thing. They're just trying to sanitize it with different language. You know, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but the other thing I I think about is just like, we have abandoned the concept of private lives. And -hmm. I think some of this is social media driven. Everybody lives out their lives on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and no one has a private life. And so we tell all of our business. There was a time that if Van Jones had made a decision like this, he, he wouldn't have had, he wouldn't make a public announcement. He wouldn't talk about it, he would just do it, and that would be his business, and he wouldn't be suggesting this to other people. And, and, and so I always, and I may have said this to you before, I've certainly said it on the show before, but John Thompson, the great Georgetown mm-hmm. basketball coach, said people should have three lives, a private life, a personal life, and a public life. And, and now there's just one life, everything's a public life, I yep. don't think it's healthy for the rest of society. People, oh my God, Van Jones, he went to an Ivy League school, he's an important person on CNN, and he's telling me that I should just co-parent with someone. It's horrendous advice. Van, if that's what you wanna do, keep it to yourself. It's, it's almost like me going, you know what, everybody should, uh, I had Wendy's for uh, lunch today. Everybody should go out and, and overeat at Wendy's the way I did. I, <laughs> I, I just don't understand what happened to adults valuing their privacy. I mean, that's a great point. I definitely think that social, social media has exacerbated that. Um, everything is public now, and, and particularly for public figures, I think they both expect and desire for everything they do to be public. Um, there's, there's a sense, you know, in which they are both living their lives and also influencing sort of the broader culture. And I think that's part of what, what Van Jones is doing here. And some people will say, well, it doesn't really matter what Van Jones does. He's just one person. But ideas take effect and, and sort of latch on to the broader culture a lot quicker than people realize. In 20 years ago, let's say, even 10 years ago, honestly, the, the notion that someone, uh, a, a male, an XY person, um, could identify and be accepted as a woman, an XX person, um, is something that would have been laughable 20 years ago. Now, 20 years ago, you may have said such and such as, you know, a transvestite or a transsexual. These are words that people use back in the day. But you, you sort of, you know, waved it off in the back of the hands. You know, there's always weird people at the fringes of society. But now what we've done is we have ripped the most fundamental sort of biological fact of nature out of its place and replaced it with something having to do with how people feel and identify, which changes from day to day. So that's happened basically in the course of, I, I put ESPN honoring Caitlyn Jenner, formerly Bruce Jenner, you know, multiple time Olympian. I think that was about 2015. I put that as a, as a, as a major milestone um, as it relates to our decision to totally shift the culture in terms of what it means to be uh, male and female. 
So it's one of those things where it doesn't take a lot of time for these ideas to take root. They just have to be um, accepted and amplified by the right people, quote unquote. Um, and I think Van Jones is a part of that group. And I think it's up to us to resist that and to call foolishness foolishness and not allow ourselves to have our minds um, corrupted by people just because they have you know, fancy degrees on the wall. I go back to your original point. Uh, this is narcissism and self-worship and everyone seeing themselves as their own little Jesus and God. And so let me be the light. Let me expose everybody to everything I'm doing. I I'm Van Jones. I'm your personal Jesus. I'm certainly my own. And so let me share my walk with you and follow along mm. instead of pointing to, no, point to Jesus. Trust me, he, he right. did it better than you. And you and it, but I want to move on to another that kind of plays off this Van Jones deal uh, about this secular worldview that we have. Mm -hmm. And I saw yesterday uh, Pastor Daryl Scott, who <laughs> is popular over social media, uh, considers himself a supporter and a friend of Donald Trump and likes to brag about, you know, partying at Mar-a-Lago. And I, I think I follow Pastor Scott on social media, but I saw you and him going back and forth about hip hop, or he chimed in on a conversation you were having with several others about hip hop. And I'm just, I was sitting there like, this is a minister defending gangster rap music and deflecting and coming up with rationalizations. And I was blown away, but I'm t even among religious people, mm. they don't filter their thoughts and actions through God. They make their own decisions. And it's just like, now on Sunday, when I go to church, it's gonna be all about God. And, and for those two hours, I will filter my thoughts that way. But once I'm out here in the real world, I'm gonna get down like everybody else. It, Pastor, uh, Pastor Scott's defense of hip hop astonished me and blew me away. What was your reaction? <laughs> so so there's, there's a couple things that play here. Um, one of them has to do with the medium, right? particularly Twitter and, and other social media apps. But one of the things that you notice, and, and the way I would characterize it, is that Twitter is, I, I describe Twitter as, you know, like a, a schizophrenic ward. Uh, it's, it's a psych ward for cultural schizophrenic people. Because what you end up seeing is that the same individual cannot hold the same position or the same principle from one day to the other. So one day, or, or last week, um, the N-word is, is, is a slur. Just hearing it makes black people break down. And, and uh, particularly when it's said by a white person and Joe Rogan is so terrible, he needs to be taken off the airwaves. And then the next week people are saying, oh, it's not, no big, it's not a big deal. 30 plus years of hearing, you know, black men referred to as N-word and black women as Bs and Hs and, and all sorts of other derogatory terms is no big deal. Um, one day representation matters. Kids want to be what they see, and particularly they want to emulate the behaviors of people who look like them, who um, have positions of power and prestige. The next day, oh, it's no big deal. Um, why, well, why don't you say that uh, hip hop influences uh, white kids? White people are the biggest consumers of it. You know what I mean? So it's one of these things where um, these people have no defense, to be quite frank. 
Um, that's why they engage in a lot of whataboutism. Um, this is why they bring they they either try to dismiss or deflect. They will question motives. They'll go ad hominem. They'll say, "Oh, you don't really care about black folk." Um, they'll, they'll say all different types of things. What what they will never do is stand flat-footed and say, "I believe that um, the types of images and lyrics that rappers have been propagating for the last 30 plus years are good for black people because." None of them say that. They are completely feline in their analysis. No, there's, there's not a dog among them, to be, to, be, to be quite frank. And some of these are people that I respect. I, I like the work that they do, but I, but I see what's going on. They're playing a rhetorical three-card money because no one is going to defend it. And I asked a couple people, point blank, is there an amount of money that someone could offer you that would make you publicly degrade your loved ones, your children, your community, your, your, your wife, your spouse, your mother, and I either got, well, I'm not sure, I don't understand the question, or you know, I think one person said, oh, sure, that's a conversation worth having, but nobody's going to say yes because nobody believes that. But when it comes to rappers, what we do, we hold up the fact that they donated, seven, Dr. Dre donated $70 million, I think, to USC. Um, some, uh, Snoop does Pop Warner football stuff. Meek Mill does things for kids in Philly. And I'm just asking myself, how is it that we have become so comfortable playing the harlot for such a cheap price? That's one of the things that we need to figure out as a community. Because if, if, if this is what we're doing, if we're saying we are willing to ingest, not just ingest poison, but defend the sale, the glorification, the commodification of cultural poison in our community for 30 plus years, and we'll do it because a few uh, black men become millionaires and, and even fewer black women become millionaires, then we're just, we're lost. And I don't care how many elected officials you rep you get elected, um, how many conservative politicians take office in the House and in the Senate, if, if we can't decide whether, you know, our, our public image deserves to be protected or not, then we're lost. And, and Jason, one of the ironies is that some of these same people the moment they hear Candace Owens make a cross comment, if she says, if she if she mentions the fact that you know the, the homicide uh, rate among both in terms of victims and perpetrators among you know black folks is far disproportional to our, our you know population percentage, they jump up and say, oh man, she she bashing black folk in front of white people, she making us look bad. But then when you have artists doing this, and again, this is, their, this is their main vehicle. This is their main contribution to society. Snoop's main contribution to society is from doggy style, through smoking reefer with, with Martha Stewart, to, to uh, telling Gail King that she's a, a, a funky dog head bee because she dared to ask a question about Kobe Bryant's legacy. And in between that is all types of Bs and Hs. In between that is showing up to the VMAs with two black women on dog collars. In between that is him bringing a pimp, Bishop Don Magic Juan, to BET and MTV and platforming this person. And when, when we hear the things that he's done, we respond with a collective shoulder shrug. So it's one of these things where, again, I know people are not going to stand on it. They're not going to defend it. They, they'll dismiss it. They'll deflect from it. They'll do whataboutism. But it's, it's sad to me because, again, some of the folks I'm talking about are, co are conservatives. These are not the typical liberals that I do battle with, you know, every, every once in a while where they'll gang up eight on one. And I say, OK, I like these odds for me. 
Um, these are conservatives who are engaged in this behavior. And if, and if this is the direction of the black conservative movement, we're in trouble. Man, you said such a mouthful. Uh, it, it's it's it was stunning to me to read your. I think the guys that Jeff on the right and uh, Pastor Daryl Scott. But but what has happened to us? And I, I keep hammering this point. And this is why uh, you know Delano, you're one of the bravest, smartest, important voices out there is because you're one of the few public intellectuals who has, black public intellectuals, who also, who's a Christian who doesn't fool themselves into believing, you know, that black is their actual religion. And mm. so what I'm saying by that is like, they will spend more time and more energy and passion defending whatever black people are doing or whatever's been defined than they will Jesus. Mm. And they will stand on blackness as their primary identity and we must defend it. And so even people making music, black people making music that denigrates black people, they must defend that because it's critical that they defend blackness rather than go, well, hold on, man, this stuff that Snoop and these guys are doing, and listen, man, I indulge in the music. I grew up as a kid listening to it. I get it. But as an adult and as a mature or a maturing Christian, this stuff is poison. It cannot be defended if you're a Christian because it's just, what they're promoting, what they're doing is an objection to the gospel. It's just mm. clear as day. And, and I'm, I'm baffled by people that can't see this clearly. And it's almost like if black people took over and dominated the porn, the sexual porn industry, because this mm. is just the lyrical porn industry that we're talking about. But if black people took over the porn industry, and became the Hugh Hefners and the, the, the Ron Jeremy's of that, and the Jenna Jameson's of that, the biggest stars in porn. You'd have black ministers defending it. You'd have black conservatives defending it. Well, I mean, you're gonna complain about that. What about uh, Donald Trump? Trump, He right. had allegedly someone, a, a prostitute in Russia peed on him. So if the president can be peed on by a Russian prostitute, why are you complaining about the black porn stars being platformed and promoted as the most important people on the planet? Super Bowl halftime shows. D, uh, <laughs> keep the faith. Uh, you are an important voice. Uh, appreciate that. And, and uh, I appreciate you. And, uh, I think we're done today. You, you've done all the work you can do. Uh, I've done all the work I can do. I should be hearing tomorrow, I think, because we'll see you, Thank you tomorrow. Thank you. Freedom, looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life, like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation.